there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Due to the timeliness of this case, many names have been changed to protect the privacy of those people who were involved. Hey, that you, Michael? Headed home? Yeah. You offering me a ride? Hop in. I'm going your way. Thanks, Mr. Lacey. It's getting chilly out there. I should have left the library earlier, so I wouldn't be walking home after dark. Everything okay, sir? It's nothing. Just a little upset. Hard day. Sorry to hear it. Is your work going all right? It was fine. Well, it was, until I went up there with a rock and bashed her brains in. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our final episode on the murder of Sophie Tuscan Duplantier, who was brutally beaten to death in West Cork, Ireland, just before Christmas of 1996. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. 
It was December 23, 1996, when the tiny town of Skull in West Cork, Ireland, was forever changed by the murder of French television producer Sophie Tuscan Duplantier. The brutal nature of Sophie's death, not to mention her beauty, glamour, and celebrity, made her murder a top news story in Ireland and around the world. The case continues to this day, with developments still unfolding. In our discussion, we will only use the facts available at the time of this recording. France and Ireland have spent two decades wrestling over the facts and the best way to deliver justice. Both nations want to see Sophie's killer punished, but they can't agree on how best to make this happen, even though everyone agrees on at least a few basic facts of the case. Sophie's neighbor found her body at around 10 a.m. on December 23rd, beaten and bloody, her skull crushed in by a cinder block. Her head had been so badly damaged that it was difficult to positively identify the body. Hours later, Sophie's housekeeper's husband happened upon the crime scene and was able to recognize what was left of Sophie's face. At first, the people of Skull believed the murderer couldn't be one of their own. They hoped it was a tourist or even a Frenchman Sophie had brought with her to town. She had shown up with a man in tow on previous trips, after all. But soon, tips began coming in from the public. Cork County Station, how may I help you? I'm calling about the Sophie Duplantier murder. Go on. Anything could be helpful, no matter how small. Uh, I don't know. It's probably nothing. Let us determine that. I saw a man. At Madame Duplantier's house. On Kayafeta Bridge, just down the road from her place, around 3 a.m. What did he look like? Tall, average weight, dark hair. Did you recognize him? No, I'm sorry. I really should go. If there's anything else you can tell us, this is critically important. A young woman is dead. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have called. I'm sure it's nothing. Can I at least get your name? Fiona. And so, the police had their first lead of the case. Not much to go on. A man on a bridge near Sophie's house at 3 a.m., could just be an insomniac out for a walk or someone having an affair. But in the sleepy town of Skull, seeing anyone out of the house at 3 a.m. would be noteworthy. And Sophie's house was up a hill where few had a reason to go. The police apparently felt confident that there could be a connection. We are asking for this anonymous woman, identifying herself only as Fiona, to please come forward with any more information she could have about the man she saw on Kealfeta Bridge on December 23rd. It is your moral and legal duty to help in any way you possibly can with the investigation of this horrific crime. We will protect your personal information in every possible way. A little over a week after Fiona's first call, the police made a big, risky public plea for Fiona's cooperation. On the very next day, Fiona called again. Unfortunately, she insisted she had no additional information about the man she had seen that night. Fiona was the Garda's only lead, so they refused to accept that she had told them everything that she knew. They traced the call, but she had called from a payphone. 
Fiona was lost in the wind. The Garda was desperate to get her to talk. They made another public plea, asking Fiona to come to the police station so they could speak in person. A few days after this plea, Fiona called a third time. She told the Garda that she had no intention of coming into the station, but she had made a mistake. She had called from her own home phone, and the Garda had traced the call. Finally, they had the anonymous caller's identity and could work with her directly. However, in order to maintain her privacy, we'll continue to call her Fiona. The Garda went to Fiona's home and began speaking in person with her, pressuring her to tell them the full story, to tell them everything she knew about the man on the bridge. Yet, even in person, Fiona continued to insist that she had told the Garda everything she knew. The Garda were forced to acknowledge that they had hit a dead end in the investigation. With the Garda desperate enough to hang their whole investigation on a single vague tip about a man standing on a bridge, it began to look like the killer would never be found. Local papers grew increasingly critical of the detectives' efforts in the case. Until February 4th, 1997, when a young schoolboy, who we will dub Mike for privacy reasons, went into the local station and gave a statement. Mike told police about a man who offered him a ride home, then became agitated, cursing under his breath as he drove. When Mike asked the driver what was wrong, Mike claimed the man confessed to Sophie's murder. I went up there with a rock and bashed her brains in. (laughs) Thankfully, Mike was able to identify the man who drove him home. We'll call this man Sean Lacey in an effort to protect his privacy. Sean was a British reporter, a man who had been living in Skull for some time. He was known locally as an unpredictable eccentric who had problems with women and with alcohol. On February 10th, one week after the schoolboy gave his statement to the Garda, Sean was arrested and brought in for questioning. Sean's domestic partner, who we will refer to as Julia, was arrested later that day. However, Sean insisted that his so-called confession was just a tasteless bit of ironic social commentary. But this did little to sway the police, and he remained the prime suspect. The Garda soon discovered that Sean was a freelance crime reporter and had actually been at the site on the day of the murder, covering the case. And Sean's explanation for his confession wasn't exactly convincing. Least of all to poor Mike, who had heard it. Mike lived in fear of Sean Lacey. After February 4th, if he saw a car coming while walking home from school, Mike would cross the road. He couldn't quite explain it, but something about Sean's tone of voice in the car had disturbed him so deeply, his entire outlook on life changed. One more thing made Sean an attractive suspect. During the interview, he admitted to having done some yard work for Sophie's neighbors. So he knew where her house was, and he knew the layout of the property. Although Sean insisted he'd never met Sophie, he did admit that the neighbor had pointed her out through a window. So he knew who she was. And Sean Lacey had a checkered history with women. Word around town was Sean had repeatedly beaten his longtime girlfriend, usually when he was drunk. This was proven through pictures, and Sean admitted to the abuse in 2014. 
And yet, after his arrest, the police felt that there just wasn't enough evidence to press charges against him. Sean did not necessarily try to separate himself from the crime. In fact, he wrote several articles about the case for the Sunday Tribune, an Irish newspaper. However, he failed to inform the paper that their intrepid crime reporter was himself a suspect. When the Garda could not charge Sean, it brought the case to a standstill. Sophie's husband, Daniel Tuscan Duplantier, was already eliminated as a suspect. So was her former affair partner, an artist we're calling Bernard, as he was also in France at the time of her murder. But even as suspects were eliminated, theories and speculation about the murder would only grow to almost uncontrollable proportions. We'll continue her story after this. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. And now, back to the story. Sophie de Plantier was murdered on December 23, 1996, but after a teenage boy brought word of a confession to the Garda in February of 1997, the case became an even bigger news story than it was before. However, even with the alleged confession, the Garda lacked the necessary evidence to put their primary suspect, Sean Lacey, on trial. The papers went wild with speculation as genuine information from the police dried up. In some cases, reporters were accused of simply making up salacious details. The public's imagination ran wild. Some might have pictured how her numerous alleged romances might have gone fatally wrong. Go home. I don't want to see you. I didn't hike all the way up your hill to listen to you through a closed door. We're working this out right now. It's the middle of the night. You're drunk. Go home to your wife. If you won't let me in, at least come outside and talk to me face to face. Only cowards end things in letters. If I tell you to your face, will you leave and accept that we're over? Let's just see where the night takes us. The Irish Independent published claims that Sophie had planned to leave Daniel and return to her first husband. The paper also accused her of carrying on a love affair with a third Frenchman, all while juggling her current and former husbands. British tabloid The Star went even farther than that, accusing Sophie of bringing, quote, a number of male companions to her West Cork home. The darling of the French film scene was now a lewd tabloid story. Her death was handled with none of the nuance or art of the films she once produced. 
As time went on, several witnesses came forward with new information about Sean Lacey. In 1998, Eddie Fitz, the live-in partner of the woman who found Sophie's body, went on record saying he was 90% sure that he had introduced Sean and Sophie. Then, in 1999, a filmmaker friend of Sophie's came forward saying that Sophie had mentioned Sean Lacey by name. Meaning Sean's real name, of course, not the pseudonym we've given him for this podcast. Remember, Sean insisted to police that he'd never met Sophie. So even if their acquaintance was casual, if these new witnesses told the truth, it meant Sean was lying to police. That filmmaker friend had another piece of interesting information for the Garda. He claimed Sophie had shared with him the details of a very disturbing conversation with Sean. Sophie revealed that Sean told her about his intense interest in writing about violence. He found crime fascinating. That does sound a little suspicious when taken in combination with everything else we know about Sean. Although I feel it's strange that the friend wouldn't come forward until three years after the murder. Maybe he forgot about it. Or maybe he didn't think it was worth mentioning until he found out that Sean Lacey was denying that he had ever met Sophie. With this additional information available, teams were formed on two separate occasions to review the evidence collected, the first in 2001 and the second in 2002. Both came to the same conclusion. Despite the new information, there was still not enough evidence to bring Sean Lacey to trial. The lack of DNA evidence was especially damning for any potential case. Worse still, both panels found that the Garda had made serious mistakes in their handling of Sophie's murder, specifically the decision to leave her body outside overnight. Errors like this may have deprived investigators of physical evidence that could have definitively pointed to a killer. But the almost complete lack of physical evidence against Sean didn't stop people from talking. Sean was everyone's favorite suspect due to the confession he made to 14-year-old Mike, the lies he told the police, and his history of domestic violence. Faced with this intense scrutiny, Sean continued to proclaim his innocence, going so far as to file a libel suit in 2003 against multiple newspapers that had reported on his possible guilt. Because that 2003 libel suit forced authorities to look into the details of the case, it gave the public access to a plethora of information that was previously unavailable. None other than Fiona, our anonymous witness, was compelled to testify in the case. And Fiona confirmed in her testimony that she had at some point identified the man she saw on Kealfada Bridge as Sean Lacey. Due to the privacy of certain police records, we don't know when this originally occurred. Later in 2003, Sean Lacey was arrested for assaulting his girlfriend, who, for the purposes of this podcast, we are calling Julia. He admitted it was the third time that he had beaten her. In one incident, Sean had even struck Julia with a crutch. On another occasion, he gave Julia a black eye so bad she couldn't open it, and he pulled out chunks of her hair. One disturbing detail to remember about Sophie's murder. She was found with chunks of her own hair clutched tightly in both fists. So we've got a suspect who had been to Sophie's house and knew the layout of the property, 
who had allegedly met Sophie more than once and lied about it, who was seen near the crime scene on the night of the murder, who had a history of violence against women, and who supposedly confessed to the crime. I can see how a lot of people think he must be guilty. Those people include the French authorities. Sean is set to be tried in France in absentia early this year. In absentia means he will be tried without being present. This is because the Irish and the French authorities don't see eye to eye on this case. While the Irish authorities felt there wasn't enough evidence to try Sean Lacey, the French disagreed. France has been trying to get Ireland to extradite Sean Lacey since at least 2010. But to no avail. And it does make sense that, if Ireland feels the evidence wasn't strong enough to justify going to trial in Ireland, then it certainly isn't strong enough to justify extraditing an Irish resident. But despite the years of questions and legal battles, many believe this trial in absentia is the closest thing to justice that Sophie will ever get. Although Sean Lacey can't be punished by the French government without extradition, a conviction would be vindicating to investigators who believe him guilty. At the very least, seeing Sean Lacey convicted might give Sophie's family a sense of closure. On the other hand, it's possible that France is pursuing the wrong man. There are some holes in the Sean Lacey investigation. For example, there is one major missing piece of information, the motive. Police have never been able to obtain evidence showing that Sean had a reason to kill Sophie. That didn't stop newspapers or local gossip from speculating on Sean's motivation for the murder. The most popular among the wildly circulated theories is also the simplest. Sean was obsessed with Sophie. If he couldn't have her, the theory goes, he wanted to make sure nobody else ever would. Well, maybe a stray glimpse through a bedroom window here and a polite conversation there was enough to create an obsession. Sean did allegedly like Sophie enough to open up about his love of crime stories. It's an interesting theory and a compelling one. But again, there's no evidence to prove it's true. And due to the many mishandlings of this case, it has essentially become Sean Lacey's word against the Gardas. He continues to insist he never met Sophie and certainly wasn't obsessed with her. In fact, Sean has put forward some theories on how he so quickly became the lead suspect in Sophie's murder, despite the lack of physical evidence against him. And his story is a tantalizing one. Sophie Tuscan Duplantier was murdered on December 23, 1996. Investigators believe based on examining Sophie's body, that her brutal murder was an unplanned crime of passion. This makes the total absence of DNA and other physical evidence at the scene surprising. That's one reason Sean Lacey believes that he is the victim of a police cover-up. A cover-up sounds at first like an absurd conspiracy theory. But when looking at the evidence, some of it actually rings true. One of the Garda's first breaks in the case came from a woman who, for the purposes of this podcast, we are calling Fiona, called into the Garda anonymously to report seeing a man on Kealfida Bridge near Sophie's home at 3 a.m. the morning of the murder. As one of the key witnesses, Fiona came to be closely linked to the case, and her identity became public. Sean Lacey soon knew exactly who claimed to have seen him that night. Sean and his attorney sued Fiona for libel. 
That's an unusual step to take with regard to someone providing evidence in a criminal case. But Sean was, by this time, desperate to prove his innocence. So far, he succeeded. As to this day, he has never been found guilty. In February of 2004, eight years after Sophie's murder, Fiona filed a complaint with the Garda. She told the Garda that Sean Lacey had come to her and threatened her in person. But on March 1st of 2004, Sean's lawyer made a sworn statement that Sean was with the lawyer in his office at the time of this alleged threat. Most people don't automatically take a murder suspect's attorney at his word, but Fiona's story gets stranger from there, making it even harder to trust her. In April 2005, Fiona made one more official statement, a statement in which she admitted to lying about Sean Lacey all along. Officer, uh, hello. How can I help you? I just stopped by to thank you for telling us about the man you saw on the bridge the night of the murder. Your husband isn't home, is he? Um, no, he isn't. Please, come in. You know, we've also looked into why you were out so late that night yourself. That's why I asked about your husband. See what I'm getting at? Yes, I think so. How did you... I don't feel that there's any need for your husband to know about the other man. Do you agree? Please, don't tell him. We have a child. It was a one-time mistake. About the case. We've brought in a suspect. We just need you to confirm he was the man you saw on the bridge that night. What if he wasn't the same man? I think you'll find that he was. A faithful wife like yourself will certainly recognize a man she saw with her own eyes. I understand. Fiona told the public that she was pressured by the Garda to identify Sean Lacey as the man she saw on Kaolfida Bridge. In exchange, they would not tell her husband she was with another man on the night in question. In her statement to the public, Fiona also formally retracted her identification of Sean Lacey. That certainly pokes a huge hole in the theory of Sean Lacey's guilt and explains Fiona's desire to remain anonymous for so long. Unfortunately, a hole is just a hole. Even if Fiona was pressured by the Garda, Sean Lacey could have murdered Sophie. It doesn't necessarily prove his innocence at all. But it does strongly indicate that the Garda was committed to bringing in Sean Lacey for the crime by any means necessary. The most generous explanation for this behavior is that the Garda was confident in Sean Lacey's guilt and was so anxious to bring him to justice that they disregarded protocol and proper police procedure in order to assure that they got their man. This was the first violent murder in the region in living memory and an international sensation. The Garda's reputation was on the line. It's also worth acknowledging that we only have Fiona's word for this. She has not always been the most trustworthy witness. And maybe she was telling the truth about Sean Lacey threatening her. She could have changed her story out of fear to appease Sean Lacey. That's possible, although it does require Sean Lacey's lawyer to publicly and knowingly lie for his client. And one would think Fiona could come up with a less incriminating way to appease Sean than by admitting to perjury and adultery. We may never know exactly what Fiona saw that night, but we do know that this reveal kicked Sean's fight to prove his innocence into high gear. 
In 2011, Sean Lacey and his lawyer filed a complaint with the GSOC, an independent organization that essentially functions as the Irish Bureau of Internal Affairs, overseeing the Garda and their practices. The GSOC launched an investigation that ended up lasting years as they re-interviewed witnesses and looked into all the Garda records of the original case. In the course of their investigation, the GSOC reviewed the Garda's jobs book, a complete record kept of every step in a Garda investigation. The results of the GSOC's investigation, which were finally released in early 2018, show something very damning that they found in the book, or rather, something they didn't find. All the pages corresponding to the early days of the investigation of Sean Lacey went missing from the jobs book. And according to the GSOC, these pages are not something that could have simply fallen out. Without formal records, they'd have to rely on verbal testimony. Since it had been approximately 20 years since the murder, Many of the officers who originally worked on the case were either deceased or retired by the time the GSOC came calling. But in some cases, Garda witnesses flat out refused to cooperate. It definitely didn't look good, but the GSOC was unable to officially prove tampering on the part of the Garda. They eventually chalked the missing pages up to accidental removal during one of the many reviews of the jobs book throughout the years. But it seems the damage is done. The evidence supporting the Garda's targeted and possibly biased investigation into Sean Lacey is fairly compelling and makes the idea of a police cover-up a little bit more believable. But why Sean Lacey? Of all the men in Skull, they chose him for a reason. Although Sean had lived in Skull for years, he was originally from England. Maybe they felt his outsider status would be believably suspicious, or at least more so than pinning the crime on someone born and raised in West Cork. Not to mention, he was a freelance crime reporter writing about the investigation into Sophie's case. The Garda was reportedly not pleased by his reporting. Pinning a murder on a reporter is one way to stop him from covering a crime story. Well, unless that reporter is Sean Lacey. As we mentioned earlier, he kept writing about Sophie's murder after he became a suspect. Resentment of Sean Lacey's reporting is probably the most believable reason for the Garda to frame him, if you believe they did so. But other theories imply something much more sinister had taken place. We'll delve further into possible Garda corruption after this. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. And now, back to the story. Sophie Tuscan Duplantier was murdered outside of her vacation home in West Cork, Ireland, on December 23, 1996. The Garda's investigation of the murder had settled on one primary suspect, Sean Lacey. However, in 2018, 
GSOC, Ireland's version of internal affairs, found that the Garda had at least partially attempted to frame Sean Lacey. This invited speculation as to the Garda's motive for this duplicitous behavior, and one Irish magazine posited that the Garda might have been covering for one of their own. You always leave too soon. I can see I'm going to have to put you under arrest to get some time with you. Don't joke about that. You know I'd rather be in Ireland than France, but I've got a career and a family to think about. I'm getting a little tired of hearing you talk about your husband. Why can't we just talk about us? Shh. We're not alone. You okay over there, Sophie? I can take care of myself, but thank you. I'm serious. We could be together. You can get a divorce. Why won't you even consider it? Excuse me. I'd like to pay my tab. I'm going to turn in early tonight. I will not be ignored. You're making a scene. This is nothing. You should see the scene I'll make if you keep denying me. Some people believe Sophie was having an affair with a member of the Garda, the Irish police force. And for some reason, their relationship soured so badly that he killed her. Then, the theory goes, the Garda closed ranks around one of their own, pinning his crime on an outsider who was widely disliked in West Cork. Of course, the mere fact that this rumor appeared in tabloids doesn't make it believable. The papers picked up all kinds of untrue rumors about Sophie after her murder became West Cork's most memorable news story. But if it's true, the cover-up theory does explain a lot of the more bizarre facts of the case. Like the total lack of DNA evidence, the absence of any evidence in Sophie's home, and the strange decision to leave the body outside overnight, which caused it to deteriorate so badly that a time of death couldn't be precisely determined. The Garda might have been malicious, rather than just inept. They could have destroyed evidence and then reported that they didn't find any to begin with. Although a shocking accusation, this is almost easier to believe than the prevailing theory. The prevailing theory being, of course, that Sean Lacey impulsively beat a woman to death with a cinder block, but managed to leave absolutely no evidence of his guilt behind. That's certainly an interesting theory. But of course, the big problem with this idea is that we have no evidence of Sophie's supposed affair with an officer. That could be because the Garda suppressed evidence. Or it's just an unsupported rumor. But even if she never conducted an affair with a member of the Garda, I think the theory of an affair needs further investigation. Sophie had stepped out on her husband at least once before, even if Daniel and Sophie had an understanding about her cheating, as some sources claim, he might have harbored resentment. You're right. And this brings us to perhaps the strangest theory about Sophie's demise. Maybe her affairs were just too much for Daniel to tolerate after a while. Or maybe she did something more serious to anger him. You're not really leaving. After everything I've done for you? Ah, here comes the dramatic monologue. Local knight in shining armor rescues ordinary woman and makes her a star. Ordinary? Hardly. You're the most fascinating woman alive. I'll never even come close to knowing everything about you. But I still want to spend the rest of both our lives trying. I want to spend the rest of my life happy. You can't be happy with me. I can't be happy in the life that makes you happy. And you can't be happy with the life that makes me happy. 
I'll move. I'll become a farmer. I'll do anything. Please, Sherry. You say that now, and I know that you mean it. But I'd be cruel to let you follow me. That's my taxi. We'll talk soon. If you walk out that door, everything changes. There's no going back after this. Goodbye, Daniel. I'll call you from Ireland. Sophie may have been leaving her husband. Maybe she was even leaving him for another man. At least, that was one of the rumors floated by the tabloids at the time of Sophie's death. Normally, tabloid rumors can only be taken with a grain of salt, but there is some reason to believe that the story of an affair could be true. For one, it wouldn't have been Sophie's first. As we briefly discussed in the previous episode, in the spring of 1992, four and a half years before her death, Sophie met a French artist whom we'll call Bernard. Bernard and Sophie became lovers. He even accompanied her on at least two trips to West Cork, including the trip she took to set up her house in Skull. But the affair only lasted a year, with Sophie calling things off in 1993. Bernard was briefly considered a suspect in Sophie's murder, but he had an incontrovertible alibi. He was in Paris supervising the installation of his new telephone at the time of the murder. A hand-signed receipt from the phone company proved it. Not to mention, Bernard had no reason to kill Sophie in 1996. The pair had only spoken once since their breakup three years before. But what the relationship with Bernard does prove is that Sophie wasn't shy about looking outside her marriage for male company. We don't know how Daniel felt about this. Bernard says he believed Sophie's husband knew about their affair. It appeared to him that Daniel and Sophie had reached an amicable understanding on the subject. Of course, even if that's true, it doesn't mean Sophie had a blanket go-ahead from Daniel to take lovers during her Ireland trips. Although, if that were the case, it would explain why Daniel never once accompanied his wife to Ireland. He didn't even travel there to view her body after the murder, saying he preferred to remember Sophie as she was in life. If Sophie really was in the process of leaving Daniel for another man, he certainly wouldn't have wanted to share that with the Garda. Not only would it make Daniel a more attractive suspect, it would upset Sophie's son and family unnecessarily. Some tabloids speculated that Sophie had planned to return to her first husband, Pierre-Jean Baudet-Vignot, who was the father of Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis Baudet-Vignot. Although Sophie met Daniel months after divorcing Pierre-Jean, perhaps she had grown nostalgic for her first love. They did have a child together and had co-parented relatively amicably. Maybe Daniel was okay with Sophie cheating on him with relative strangers, but got jealous when it came to a man who'd been such a significant part of her life. The affair theory also explains why Sophie was so vague with her friends about her travel plans. Remember, she had purchased two return flights, one for December 23rd and one for December 24th. But every time someone asked her if she'd be in town until Christmas, she said she wasn't sure. Perhaps she was hedging her bets in case she decided to cancel both flights and remain in Ireland with her lover, whoever that might be. If Sophie was leaving Daniel, Their last conversation, a phone call that lasted for over an hour, would have been Daniel's last attempt to talk her into coming home before taking matters into his own hands. The problem is, Daniel didn't take matters into his own hands. 
he was in France when Sophie died. That much we know for sure. Which is where the assassin theory comes in. Daniel hired an Irish hitman to keep Sophie from leaving him ever again. Yet this theory is quite a stretch. There are a lot of reasons it's unlikely that Daniel would have gone so far as to hire an assassin. For one, Sophie was Daniel's third wife. Both of his previous marriages had ended in divorce, and he didn't kill either of his ex-wives. Well, not to mention, Skull is a town with barely 700 residents. When Fiona said she saw a man walking on a local bridge at night, it was major news. I would have a hard time believing an international hitman would blend right in. Also, beating a woman to death with a cinder block doesn't seem like some sophisticated assassin's style. Experts say Sophie's murder had characteristics consistent with an unplanned crime of passion. And if Daniel didn't hire the assassin until after the phone call where Sophie had vowed never to return to him, well, that would mean Daniel found, hired, and paid an international hitman all in a matter of a few hours. I mean, it takes most people longer than that to find a good place for lunch. This is most likely why the Garda never pursued this as a likely explanation. It's just too bizarre to be true. But, as we've discussed, this theory is just one of many, each more dramatic and compelling than the last. Well, by the way, it's just barely worth mentioning there are a small contingent of people, mainly in West Cork, Ireland, who strongly believe that Sophie's death was accidental. A small but vocal group of neighbors believe that Sophie's injuries could have come from an attack by a horse. Well, these people argue Sophie must have gone for an early morning walk and come upon some of the horses. They say she must have agitated them, prompting them to kick her repeatedly, eventually into the cinder block. The scratch marks all over her arms were in fact bite marks from a horse. This theory is compelling in that it does explain how she was brutally murdered, even though nobody around her had a definite motive. The problem is, Sophie's injuries aren't consistent with an attack by a horse. This theory did gain enough traction that the pathologist on the case had to publicly confirm in an interview that Sophie's death could not have been an accident and that the injuries did not correlate to a horse. On the night of December 22, 1996, Sophie read the poem, A Dream of Death. As far as we know, these lines about a woman who died far from her homeland were the last words that Sophie ever read. I dreamed that one had died in a strange place near no accustomed hand, and they had nailed the boards above her face, the peasants of that land. Wondering to lay her in that solitude, and raised above her mound a cross they had made out of two bits of wood and planted cypress round, and left her to the indifferent stars above until I carved these words. She was more beautiful than thy first love, but now lies under boards. Two countries have had to deal with the aftermath of this horrific crime, only worsened by the fact that all these years later, the murder remains unsolved. All of the theories we've covered have some attractive elements. The hitman, the jilted lover, the police cover-up, and the most prevalent theory, the one that has essentially served as the official story for the last two decades, that Sophie was murdered by Sean Lacey. 
But it's important to remember that Sean was never found guilty of Sophie's murder and remains innocent until proven otherwise. That holds true for everyone involved with this case. That's not a satisfying or a happy ending to Sophie's story. And nobody involved ends up looking very good, especially not the local Garda, who bungled the case so badly that it may never be solved. But Sophie was a documentary filmmaker. Above all, she loved discovering the truth and sharing it with the world. Perhaps one day that same investigative spirit will drive some intrepid detective to solve the case. Until then, this will remain a tragic story of life lost too early and information lost to the world. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us if you enjoy the show. The best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Unsolved Murders is written by Nick Brovender and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Freddie Beckley, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Rebecca Diamond, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. 